0: Alright, I want to invite you to find your seats, we'll have time afterwards for coffee and um, enjoy the weather outside. It's good to be together. My name is uh, Dan Song and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's, if you're visiting, we welcome you and hope that you could feel welcomed here and experience the love of Jesus through restoration, whether you, you land here or not. We've been in our First Samuel sermon series looking at the King of Kings. And so if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have a Bible app that you're using, there, there are Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. So grab one of those and turn to page 232, 232. And we'll sort of like we've been doing most weeks, we'll just kind of take a chunk at a time. So keep your Bibles or your Bible app open. So that we could follow along in this story. Um, But let me pray for us. As you find 1 Samuel 11. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Lord, we give you thanks for your faithfulness to us. That you invite us into your presence. We worship. We sing. um, We offer ourselves. um, But also, Lord, you are a God who forgives. And you restore. And you desire for us to be whole. And so, Lord, I pray that as we now come to your word, strengthen us, encourage us. Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, so that, Lord, we might be transformed by your word this morning. Do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've looked at this sermon series the last uh, few weeks into the fall We've looked at how the people of God longed for a human king. And the request for a king wasn't wrong in and of itself, right? And we've seen that over these last four weeks. The request to have a king wasn't wrong, but it was their motives and why they wanted a king. And it was basically, as God said, it was a rejection of God as their king. They were rejecting God as their faithful king, when they wanted a human king. But what does God do? God gives them a king, and his name is Saul. Saul becomes the first king of Israel. And in his grace, in God's grace and mercy, he relents and lets them have their human king. Now last week, if you didn't catch it, there was this small little detail in in Saul's coronation as king. There is a few vocal voices that ask this question in verse 27 of chapter 10 how can this man saul save us that's the question we are left with at the end of chapter 10 how can this man save us and we do this in our own history right i mean think about when presidents are elected we ask there's always the dissenters though that those that don't actually believe that biden or Trump in 2016, could actually be the the faithful, the right president for our nation. And here in the same way, when Israel elects their first king, there are dissenters and they ask this very poignant question, how can this man actually save us? How can Saul save the people of God? And what we're going to do today is actually allow the story in chapter 11 answer that question for us. This is, as some scholars say, a salvation narrative. With this question, save salvation or redemption, can Saul actually save them, And how can he do that? And this narrative answers that. And what's really interesting about this salvation narrative or story is that three times in chapter 11, salvation is used. In verse 3, in verse 9, and then in verse 13. And I'm going to allow the story itself to answer that question for us. So it's a one-point sermon. You're welcome. But we're going to break it down into three parts. <laughs> so let's do that. Let's, let's follow along. As, as Saul has been coronated as king, what happens? Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. It's a city or a province of Israel. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, there's the word, salvation, if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Stop there for a moment. Here we see the problem. Israel has just celebrated. Hail the king of Israel, Saul. And immediately This story centers on this little town of Jabesh Gilead. And we are introduced to an epic antagonist. He is ruthless. He is an evil man and he is king of the Ammonites. And what we see is that he is known to gouge out the the right eyes of all peoples that he takes over. And here we are introduced to this evil man. What's fascinating about this story though is that scholars, historians, archaeologists, they actually found the Dead Sea Scrolls that add to verse 1. It's almost like the, it gives a context, so it's pro, it was probably added on later to give us more of the context of what happened with this man named Nahash. And so let me read this little um, little verse that comes from the Dead Sea Scrolls that gives us context for Nahash. Now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously, gouging out the right eye of each of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But 7,000 men, so there's probably a lot more if you include women and children, had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh Gilead. Do you see that? That's the context. That's how this city came to be. Nahash was taking over all these different cities, and 7,000 men and their wives and children fled to this little city. And now Nahash comes after them. And he wants them to come under the rule of the Ammonites. But what do these men of Israel do? They plead to Nahash, and they say, Spare us. We will live with you under your rule. But Nahash, being the ruthless, vicious, evil man he is, he says... I will make a treaty with you. You will live if I could gouge out your right eye. But this was intentional. Do you know why? Nahash was known to do this because it was very, very strategic. When men went to battle for him, or if you would go into any battle in this time, you would hold a shield in your left eye. Or left eye. See, I did it again. You you can't hold anything with your left eye. They would hold their shield with their left hand. And so they would cover their face and cover their left eye, but have their right eye to be able to look at what they were fighting or who they were fighting. And they would, with their weapon in their right hand, they would go into battle. But Nahash, by gouging out the right eye, you were deemed useless. You could not fight in battle. And because of that strategic, horrible suffering that he would put on these men, they were useless. They were shamed. They were humiliated. And this was a strategy and the kind of man that Nahash was. Further, Nahash translated meant serpent. And so when Hebrew Israelite readers or hearers heard this, it immediately took them to Genesis 3. And what happened in Genesis 3? The serpent comes and tempts Adam and Eve. And Nahash is this kind of man. He is the serpent trying to overtake and overrule God's people. And here the Israelites, as they hear this story and know that this is the serpent, Nahash, they wonder, is there going to be another Adam that does not fail? But rather will bring salvation, will bring deliverance for their people. And they ask themselves, as they asked at the end of chapter 10, How can Saul, this man, save us? Will he be the second Adam to be able to defeat the serpent Nahash? And that is the question we ask ourselves all the time, right? Through the suffering you go through, through the hardships, through the Nahash types in your life, whether it's family problems, work issues, relational problems going on. Maybe it's internal and circumstances in your own heart and in your own life where you are left weeping like the Israelites. You wonder, is there anyone that can bring me salvation and deliverance? It looks horrible. They are weeping because they know, Nehash knows, that no one's going to come and save them and deliver them. His reputation preceded him. He was evil, and he took over lands that no one else could. So what happens? The Israelites send word out, messengers to say, Will you come? In seven days they are going to take us over. They're going to gouge out our right eye. Who is there to save us? Well, let's read on in verse 5. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall this be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. There's that word again, salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. The scene shifts from Jabesh-Gilead, where there's weeping, to this little town of Gibeah. And Gibeah, if you were here last week, should ring a bell. That was Saul's hometown. And here, the king who's been coronated, anointed as the king of Israel, their first king, who's a head taller than every other man. Where do you find him after he's just been coronated as king? He's back in his hometown. And what is he doing? He's working the with his oxen. Now, what in the world, why in the world would he be doing this? Well, it actually makes sense. Israel has never had a human king. God has always functioned as their king. And so, why would he have to have all of these responsibilities or duties? There are none yet. And as as their first king, there was no court. There was no uh, throne There was no palace. And so it made sense that Saul would actually just go back to his hometown and do what he's always done. This is what Eugene Peterson said when he wrote about this. He said, the new king, finding no kingly work to do, went back to his old occupation of dirt farming. From exclamations of long live the king, we see Saul plowing the field. But now he has his first kingly responsibility. Now he has a job to do. And you ask yourself, how can this man save us? But he does. The news comes to Gibeah. And what does Saul do? He gets angered. He's kindled with righteous anger because of the oppression of Nahash and the suffering of God's people. And he steps into action, doesn't he? He takes his yoke of oxen. What does he do? I mean, this graphic, he cuts them, chops them up into little pieces, delivers it to the tribes of Israel, and says, If you don't come, and if all your men do not come right now, this is what's going to happen to all of your oxen. And so what happens? They respond. 330,000 men, foot soldiers, come and gather, and we describe, And they, the author describes it as one man. They come unified because of Saul. And they come ready to fight. And Saul brings them, gives them the marching orders. And at early in the morning, somewhere between 2 and 6 a.m., they rush in to Nehash's palace and to his world. And they destroy. He divides the company into three different groups. And they charge in. And by noon, at the hottest time of the day, the Ammonites are destroyed and scattered. Saul so we see here is used by God. The question that we were left with: how can this man save us? He saves them. He is faithful as their king to deliver them from their oppression, their suffering, and their injustice. We see a beautiful picture of what the king is called to do. Is he truly the second Adam? Is he the one that will fight for God's people and represent God in his character? The Ammonites are totally wiped out because of Saul's responsibility as he steps up to it. But what goes on? After this great victory, what happens? Let's read on in verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Right? They're asking that same question from uh, chapter 10 that we were left off with last week. Shall Saul reign over us? Bring those men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation. There's that third time the word is used. The Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. We see the story that began with weeping, with suffering. And what do we read at the end of chapter 11? There's rejoicing. There are glad hearts. After the dust has settled and the victory won, they rejoice. But here's what's so interesting about this. When you rejoice and you experience so much victory, what does the party that wins always do? They want vindication, right? They are in a state of euphoria, and they want vindication against all those that basically we're naysayers or dissenters and oppose the rightful king or president or whoever's elected, right? We do that in today's political arena. And here we see the same thing happen. They immediately, those that won and were pro-Saul, they immediately think about all those that oppose Saul and they go, where are all those people that say, how can he save us? Let's go kill all of them. But what does, Paul, what does Saul do? Just like Winston Churchill, who said, we shall show mercy, but we shall not ask for it. Saul does the same thing. In a beautiful moment, Saul reflects the character of God. He shows mercy. He shows grace and compassion. And what does he say? He says in verse 13, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. That was the worst thing he could have done, politically. Politically, you were opening the door for them to come back and do some kind of coup d'etat and destroy Saul. It also showed his weakness, that he would not put down those that were against him. But Saul... Reflecting the character of God. Remember that the, the, the responsibilities and duties that Samuel wrote in the book last week? He reflected God's character in this moment. He showed mercy and compassion. And he... Allowed them to live. And what did they do after that? They all gather together. All of Israel gathers together at Gilgal. And Samuel leads another worship service to remember the things that God has done for them. They offer sacrifices. They worship. And they renew their kingdom with God. We're going to look at that next week as John preaches in chapter 12. But this is important. They remember that it is God who has provided for them. And what opens up with the story of weeping ends with rejoicing. Salvation, deliverance has come. Now, to the question, how can this man save us? Do you know what the answer is? It's not through Saul. On a surface-level reading, we might be tempted to say Saul, their king, was the one that saved them. But when you look at this closer, it reveals that Saul wasn't the main actor. He was not the main character in this story. Rather, it was the Spirit of God. The answer is that Saul can save them only through the work of the Spirit of God. And there's two ways in why I argue this. First, everything leading up to verse 6, it's grim. It's horrible. Jabesh, Gilead, and the people are unable to defend themselves. Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, is confident that no one will come to rescue them. The people of Gibeah, when they hear what's happened in verse 4, what do they do? They don't even begin to gather an army. They just start weeping because they they feel helpless. And then we find Saul. What's he doing? He doesn't have an army. He's working the field and the dirt with his oxen. Verses 1 through 5 leave us with little hope. But it's when you read verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And that phrase, from that phrase on, everything changes. From there, Saul suddenly acts with confidence. He gathers an army, which he boldly ru- ru- boldly routs the Ammonites and delivers the people of Jabesh Gilead. You see, that moment in verse six tells us everything we need to know about how salvation and deliverance happens. It's by the work of the Spirit of God. The other way that is so poignant, that it is truly the work of the Spirit, and the Spirit that's the actor here, main actor, is that this chapter is written in the structure of a chiasm. And you don't need to remember that. All chiasm is, is a structure that mirrors itself. So from verse 1 and 13, on the beginning and the end, they mirror one another. And as you continue to work your way to the middle, it's at the center that the author or the storyteller wants to hit home. And it wants to convey as the most important thing. And what is it? It's verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. How can this man Saul save the people of God? It is through the work of the Spirit of God. If you take anything else from this story and this sermon this morning, hear this. The central point seems to be that even now, even even after Israel has been given a human king, right? God has relented. God has been gracious. It is still Yahweh, God Himself, who is Israel's Savior as He works by His Spirit. It's not about the human king, whether it's Saul or David or Jehoabim or whoever. It is God who is their salvation and their deliverance. And that's what we need to remember. That is what the author was trying to hit home for the hearers. That where we find salvation and deliverance is not in chariots. It's not in horses. But it's in the Lord. It's in His work in our lives where we actually find salvation and deliverance. Are you weeping? Are you heartbroken? Are you experiencing so much conflict in your life, job, your children, your parents, school, friendships? Who is Nahash for you? And though we try to find methodologies and other people and strategies and our own self and our own strength to be able to defeat Whatever is lying in front of you. What the Lord wants to remind us is, is that it is Him and only through Him that we find salvation and deliverance. Saul was not the second Adam. Yes, I have pointed out, we see the character of God. God uses him. But as we go through this fall, you will see him fall and fall very quickly. He was faithful here. But in chapters 13, 14, he has absolutely no faithfulness. He does not reflect the character of God. But you know who does? It is truly the second Adam in Jesus, who was faithful not for one chapter, but faithful until the end. He did not exhibit and wield salvation through his power alone, but it was through his humility and his death on the cross that he was able to bring salvation and deliverance for us. It wasn't just through his power and being God who holds all things together, but it was also through his weakness. Lying naked on the cross, being hungry, knowing that he was taking on perishability as a human flesh, that he was able to conquer victory for you and for me because he lived the perfect life that we cannot live. And this is why we look to not only our God who works through the Spirit, but Jesus Christ who is our elder brother and our Savior. It is through Jesus alone who is an accomplished victory over Nahash's in our lives that we could actually find hope in Christ and in anything we endure and suffer through. Put your hope in Christ this morning. It doesn't mean that you will have all your problems solved. No, I mean the Israelites experienced many more battles, many more losses, much more weeping. You see, we know the end of the story. Christ not only died, he conquered death and rose from the grave. And as we sung earlier, One day we will rise from the dead and we will finally have the victory we've been longing for, tasting for, hoping for. And this table represents that for us this morning. That cup that Jesus drank was bitter to the dregs, but for us it's joy. It's one of celebration. It's the wine that continues to be refilled over and over for us. Because in Christ, he has accomplished it all. He has found victory and salvation, deliverance for his people. His body that was broken. shed on the cross is for us so that we might be sustained even in hardships that we can find contentment and joy and sustenance because of Christ himself and we do that together we can cry out the Lord is our salvation because of Jesus alone let's pray our heavenly father we come before you this morning and we thank you for Jesus who was truly the the second Adam that Adam could not be. You were faithful to the end. You were perfect unto death, and you were our salvation through life and death. So Father, I pray that you would point our eyes to you, to your Son, that even as we come to the table this morning, that you would strengthen us, encourage us, and give us the grace and the the sustenance that we need to be able to carry on faithfully. Not only looking to you, but looking on, to one, looking on to one another because of your grace and your strength. Do that good work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.